Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just on four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today, the anti-conscription campaigns in 1916 and 1917 and the campaign today to say what's left of Pentridge Prison. We'll find out the connection. The monthly report from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War with Dr Margie Beavis. Professor Emeritus James Petrus looking at Obama in Cuba and Rousseau clinging to power in Brazil. Environmentalist Lee Tan reporting back from Timor-Leste and the situation in Malaysia. Jewish-Australian-Israeli peace activist Alex Nissen, Her Life and Work, Part 1. But first, it's Mr Kevin Healy and it's his week. A week, Jane Lister, when, despite the jokes which will be flying about, about disillusion, we astute souls know in this case the meaning, they are spelled differently, of course, is not the mental state brought on by our esteemed parliamentarians, but the act of dissolving, as big supremo Malcolm Tunnerbull explained yesterday. We must dissolve evil trade unions and lazy avaricious workers. It is vital to the transition of this economy. Uh, Yes, Malcolm, uh, transitioning from what to what? Well, we are transitioning from grossly exploitative capitalism to even more grossly exploitative capitalism. Uh, So you admit filthy, rich, bloated capitalists exploit the masses. Good heavens, no, that's that's that old-fashioned class struggle nonsense we have to eradicate, indeed dissolve. No, it's the masses, especially the evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers, masses who exploit. And top marks to the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin this morning explaining what the two disillusioning bills are about. One would make it difficult for criminal union bosses to keep their jobs. The other set up to keep lawless construction union and officials in line. Direct quote. Thank you, Lord Rupert, for such dispassionate objectivity and balance. Balance exemplified yesterday as we waded through the whopping sins coverage of all the things that matter, looking for its coverage of thousands and thousands marching Sunday to support evil, no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people. Page after page of people gathering to watch lots of noise and pollution roar round Albert Park, grand pricks. Then another spread, lots of people. Oh, here it is, I said, but no, a fun run for charity, raising money to support that which our taxes are supposed to support. They probably could if it wasn't for those evil unions whose demise is essential to transition the economy. On and on, more and more critically important items, but thousands marching to support those seeking our help, many of them victims of our own invasions. Not a word. Non-news. Unimportant. Still, given the general part of the world where those seeking refuge come from, not as unimportant or relevant as Turkish people, apparently, because after yet another horrific bombing in the middle of Ankara, killing and injuring lots of innocents... 
our minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie Bash Up the Workers, assured us our true blue Aussie ambassador, who was sitting in his car just down the road, was safe and... No true blue Aussies were among the victims and no foreign nationals were among the victims. Uh, so the dead and injured were all Turkish, Julie. Yes, thank heavens, all Turks, only Turks. Back to Malcolm and his difficulties with evil unions, his love of decency and honesty. As evil union officials have been dragged before the enforcers of capitalist law, that is, good, sensible, responsible law, charged with allegedly playing up, we come to play up which in turn confirms why independent, responsible, well, like the law, good, sensible, responsible directors must control all that lovely, lovely workers' super money because what would workers know about controlling lovely, lovely money? Uh, unless we consider that the funds run by workers outperform the funds run by good, sensible, responsible directors. But that's not a fair comparison because the latter have to make money for the banks and the big financial institutions Institutions, dual responsibilities explaining why the good, sensible, responsible directors must demand huge remuneration from the workers' lovely, lovely money for their dedication to the banks and the financial institutions. Uh, oh, and to the workers, of course. Anyway, play up. That's the name of this online gambling sports management whiz-bang state-of-the-art investment opportunity launched by that good, sensible, responsible former New South Wales big supremo and now big, big-time practitioner of what's good for all of us, Nick Grinder, the workers. See, a who's who of true blue Aussie's biggest investors and good, sensible, responsible, independent directors poured trillions into play-up because it couldn't fail. Could it? The wise investments, including a few million from our very own Malcolm, a wise investor. Unfortunately, PlayUp has hit the big corporate wall. And it turns out workers receive no pay and no entitlements like super for months and now they're owed thousands. A typical little story not worth talking about in many ways, except... A couple of years ago, Malcolm and his family converted their investment into a debt owed by the company with first call. So while play-up was sinking into the mire and workers receiving not one cent, Malcolm's investment was receiving lots of lovely, lovely money paid to his son. And now, as our big supremo copped all this money while the workers copped not a cent, PlayUp and Malcolm are saying the government is responsible for the workers' entitlements, showing they're not so ideologically hidebound to think government has no role in business at all. And given that that who's who of big investors, the very people the government says must manage workers' super funds, get their hands on all that lovely, lovely workers' money, PlayUp's demise and Malcolm's good luck show why we can't leave such matters to ignorant workers who know nothing about sensible investment. After all, Malcolm got paid and the workers didn't, a microcosm of how super should work. Although sadly, the big who's who of filthy rich investors other than Malcolm and his lot lost the lot, poor dears.
Oh, but good news, Nick cried of the workers, and they certainly did. Nick bailed out a couple of years ago before the proverbial hit the fan or the investments hit the wall to mix our metaphors. So play-up exemplifies why the government is rushing to put that lot in charge of all that lovely, lovely workers' money. Due to really important matters like evil union officials facing serious charges like being evil union officials, Malcolm, Nick, Playup and good, sensible, responsible directors and investors joined the refugee march in not getting a look-in in the Lord Rupert of Wapping Media and all but one of the Falfax Empire and, of course, not a word on those comprehensive telly users. Suppose we could call the directors responsible. They, they were responsible for blowing all that money. On which one of the great troubler Aussies who knows what's good for all of us, Frank Lowy than Lowe. He knew it was good for all of us that the public purse provide billions to support his little soccer hobby, and it worked out pretty well. We got his vote. OK, just the one vote, and we probably could have got it for a few billion less, like every cent of the few billion we spent less. Now he's found a new role for the public purse. We can build all the infrastructure we need without affecting the budget. Well, let's clarify that. We can build all the infrastructure the corporate cowboys like Frank, who know what's good for us, tell us what's good for us. That is, infrastructure which, after the public purse has funded it, then turns over a neat little profit. Profit being something the public purse has no right to, and therefore... So under Frank's latest burst of public altruism, the government, the public purse, pays for it. Then the private sector, like Frank Lowy than Lowe himself, take it over, and the cost doesn't appear as a budget loss because the private sector now owns it and rakes in, as is its right, the neat little profit, which naturally must become a neat, much bigger profit because the public now enjoys the super-efficiency of the private sector and can't expect a blood job the innate goodness of the private sector. Frank just never stops thinking up great ideas for the public purse, does he? Well, the last thing Frank wants is other people's taxes being wasted on other people. A conviction put into practice by the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Home Country Caring Business Class Government budget just last week, when it decided it had enough of wasting other people's taxes on other people just because those other people had a disability of some sort, slashing their benefits because the government must practice austerity, which is good for everyone, including the other people with a disability who have lost their benefits. But the positive is what they, what they lose has been picked up by the wealthy, the filthy rich who received huge tax cuts. And well, someone had to pay for the tax cuts. And as our very own caring business class, Big Supremos, pointed out last week, and the man who told the corruption inquiry he had no idea, no idea, caring business class government big shot Arthur Sins of Dunnas told us this week, the only beneficiaries from tax cuts for the rich are workers. Something about the tax cuts being used to generate jobs and increase wages. Apparently the last thing the rich would do is pocket the windfall and begin their campaign for the next tax cut because the tax cut they're now paying, or now not paying, is screwing them and making the uncompetitive on the great level playing field of world's best practice. 
So finally, the British Chancellor did the disabled a favour. The disabled are just so lucky, the rich chorus, as they calculated their windfall. No disillusion for them. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And if you'd like to say good morning to Mr Kevin Healy tomorrow, it's nine o'clock for City Limits. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. What is the connection between opposition to the planned 19-storey apartment complex within the walls of the former Pentridge prison in Coburg, the modest St Ambrose Community Centre in Sydney Road, Brunswick, and the successful anti-conscription campaigns in 1916 and 1917? Victoria University Emeritus Professor and long-time Moreland resident Michael Hamilgreen knows the connections, and I spoke with him to find the answers. I first asked Michael to set the scene for the first anti-conscription campaign, which culminated in a vote in October 1916. The government in 1916 was was facing the the difficulty of um, getting sufficient recruits. Casualties were beginning to mount, and both in Britain, New Zealand, um, Australia, they were having trouble, according to the military recruitment, getting enough soldiers. So the Prime Minister of the day, Biddy Hughes, sought to um, introduce a, a conscription scheme and, and met with immediate opposition from um, trade union leaders, key Labour Party and uh, anti-war groups, particularly the Quakers. The government was supported, the government of the day was supported by all the state governments except the Queensland government and and all the mainstream media were in support of uh, introducing conscription. But the problem that was faced uh, by the Prime Minister was that um, in the uh, Senate, the number of uh, anti-conscription senators uh, uh, was sufficient to be able to block any proposal to introduce conscription. So the compromise was to have a referendum in, in 1916, October 28, 1916. And uh, Billy Hughes, the Prime Minister, was uh, extremely confident that uh, uh, he would win that referenda. So even before the referenda was to uh, take place, he actually started calling up people on the assumption that the referenda would, would be passed, uh, including uh, a later Prime Minister, John Curtin, was called up in that, that um, first ballot and then refused to go. So um, the, the expectation with, with the whole establishment, practically every major church except the, uh, the Catholic Church in Melbourne under Archbishop Mannix were supporting uh, conscription, all the mainstream media and um, every state government except the Queensland state government was supporting conscription. Yet in the end, uh, a majority um, voted against conscription. primary reason for that was the extraordinary campaign that... Uh, the uh, trade unionists, the Labour Party, the international workers, IWW um, uh, campaign, uh, anti-war Quakers uh, was one of the few churches to campaign against uh, conscription. So the the extraordinary campaign organised by workers and uh, anti-war activists and at the same time 
people were finding, you know, the, the extraordinary casualties were beginning to create disillusionment with, with the war. And the, the other major factor, of course, was the East Uprising, which was brutally suppressed by the um, British authorities in, in, in Ireland. And uh, so the, the Irish Catholic community were increasingly disillusioned about um, uh, the British actions and, and the British Empire more generally. So um, that was another factor at the time. So there must have been a lot of pressure on the government if they decided to have another go a year later. Yes, well, the, the problem resurfaced. Uh, one, you know, when, when he lost the uh, the first referendum in 1916, Biddy Hughes gave an undertaking that uh, there would be no further introduction of conscription without putting it to the Australian people again. And um, in 1917, the, 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 the problems of recruitment uh, were still there, and uh, there was um, allegedly a request from the British government that uh, unless uh, Australia sent more... Um, troops, then the Australian identity would have to be absorbed amongst other brigades in the army and, and uh, so that, that was a kind of a, a further incentive for um, Australia to try and you know, preserve its identity by having uh, sending more soldiers. So the, the impetus to, uh, to have a second referendum was there and again Billy Hughes uh, thought he would win that second referendum and uh, in, in fact uh, the reverse uh, happened. There was an even greater majority who um, opposed the um, conscription being introduced including uh, almost a majority of the soldiers fighting at the front so, uh, you know, huge casualties, as we now know. I mean, it was uh, you know, sort of um, sending um, you know, cannon fodder to this war. You know, and, uh, you know, practically every family you know, in Australia was going to be affected in some way. And so, again, the, the anti-war forces mobilised a very successful campaign. And uh, you had also the women's um, groups were, were important, um, led by such people as Adela Pankhurst and various others who, who um, were able to... Um, explain to women you know, what, what the war was doing both to their menfolk and also to conditions at home, rising food prices, all that sort of thing. Just go on to a, a statement or a, a quote of yours. I'll just read it out. You describe this anti-conscription campaign as one of the rare occasions that the Australian public could make the decision on forcing men to go to war, perhaps one of the rare times anywhere in the world as opposed to the government making the decision. What happened in other countries? You mentioned Canada and yes, New Zealand. Yes. Did they have a similar referenda? Yes, that, no, they did not. Uh, Britain introduced conscription in, in late 1916, and so did New Zealand. And uh, they, we now know how badly they treated any conscientious objectors who were you know, sometimes uh, you know, sort of uh, shot and sometimes put in jail in, in the most horrendous conditions. So Australia was, was practically unique, and I think it still remains pretty unique in putting the issue of uh, you know, whether you, you force people, young men, to go to war. It's a quite extraordinary episode in, in the sort of history of uh, war-making and the, the fact that Australia put it to the vote was um, probably saved many, many lives. Well, you don't hear much about this and all the celebrations of ANZAC and all the rest of it, but the decision of the Australian people to oppose conscription in the, the, the 1916 again, 1917, you know, probably saved many, many uh, young lives from slaughter in those, those trenches in the First World War. And at the same time, they also um, saved those who are conscientiously subjected to the war. I mean, there were many problematic aspects to that war. Uh, many people conscientiously opposed it, uh, saved the, 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 those people from being sent to jail or worse, as has happened in both Britain and, and New Zealand. So look at those who are leading the campaign and those who followed on. Then the role of Brunswick and Coburg in that campaign, it was vital, wasn't it? 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, Brunswick and Coburg were of major significance. It was um, in Brunswick that the um, anti-war, anti-conscription forces really uh, forged the, the national campaign. John Curt and uh, Frank Anthony and uh, various others were, were key in the Labour Party, both you know within Victoria but nationally as well. So John Curtin, who was later to become Prime Minister in the Second World War, John Curtin um, was the national organiser. Um, he, he was appointed by the Trade Union Congress to, to actually coordinate the campaign against conscription, against, you know, for a no vote at the, the referenda. He was appointed to, to, to nationally coordinate and, and, you know, went across the country to, to do that and organised major de demonstrations in, in Melbourne, you know, something like 50,000 workers or more uh, would turn out. And uh, it was all organised from, from Brunswick. The, a lot of the key meetings were held in uh, the St. Ambrose Hall in um, Dawson Street, Brunswick, and... Uh, a lot of the other key national organisers like Frank Anstey were, were based in Brunswick and, and um, neighbouring suburbs. Uh, so in that way it was quite key and it was also key in the sense that Pentridge in Coburg was being used as the, the, the means to try and imprison and, and you know, intimidate anti-war protesters and uh, major anti-war activists like Adela Pankhurst, the famous suffragette, was put in jail for in late uh, uh, 1917, but also John Curtin himself was put in jail um, for several days, you know, in the, uh, the lead-up to the, uh, the first, um, or just after the, the first um, referendum in 1916 for refusing to comply with the call-up notice. And there were many, quite a few other um, activists who were put in jail in Pentridge. So a lot of this has been uh, totally forgotten uh, you know, in terms of uh, both the, the local council and the, uh, all the celebrations of ANZUS. That there was a major upheaval in terms of uh, opposing the war and opposing conscription. And, and key uh, national figures that, um, you know, were, were put in, in jail here in Moreland, in, in Pentridge. Um, a lot of the current interpretation of Pentridge is just focuses on the celebrity criminals rather than focusing on, or including, the, you know, some focus on the, the, the political prisoners that were in Pentridge over the years, and particularly at this time. And, of course, uh, the, as you said, the women were sent to Pentridge, and that was the, there was a women's jail there as well. Yes, from the, the late 1870s through to 1957, over 50 years that the main women's jail was in Pentridge. You wouldn't know this from the current interpretation programs at uh, Pentridge, but yes, in, in D Division, the current developer who's, who's developing that part of Pentridge you know, painted over the entire D Division um, in you know, fresh paint, you know, covering over all the, the writings and scribblings on the walls over these years, obliterating that kind of history. Yep. But uh, even, you, know, you you would just think there's a few male celebrity prisoners that you know, everyone is interested in, but in fact it was the key women's jail, the one where um, Adela Pankhurst, you know, if anyone's seen the film The Suffragettes, uh, she was in jail for exactly the same reason as the, uh, the, the first scene in The, the, the Suffragettes, where um, windows are broken in a, in a department store in the middle of London. Well, she was in jail for windows being broken in an uh, anti-war protest in the middle of Melbourne uh, uh, over rising food prices, a women's demonstration. And how long did she serve? She was there for, for two months, from you know, November through to January um, in um, 2018, over the Christmas period. And there was an amazing uh, moment when, when women organised a choir outside a, a jail cell, in, you know, sort of um, uh, singing the red flag and uh, uh, sort of um, anti-war songs uh, within the uh, you know, sound of her. <laughs> 
Yeah. That reminds me of the ring around fairly many, many years later. Was yes, yes. Uh, there was a yeah, similar sort of uh, actions during the Vietnam War period, yes. <laughs> and what were the conditions in jail for these people? They, they were reported surrenders. She was a very strong person. She'd been in jail in England, I think, three times, including on hunger strikes as part of the suffragette movement. But she, uh, from all reports, you know, found the conditions in, in uh, Pentridge uh, absolutely appalling. And, uh, you know, she saw the plight of other women prisoners and uh, she, she was absolutely appalled. I mean... The, the situation, often they would keep you know, prisoners in isolation, and even when they're exercising, and, you know, absolutely appalling um, the treatment of all prisoners, but you know, the political prisoners were um, particularly affected. What about the Wobblies? They suffered pretty badly, didn't they, when well, they, they went they to jail? Indeed. They, and they long were, terms? Um, in, they were mainly, the, the core group was in Sydney, and uh, 12 of them were jailed on trumped-up charges uh, of arson, uh, and later all but three of them were exonerated from the charges. And it was just done uh, before the, uh, the 1916 referenda, so it was a, a clear effort to try and, uh, you know, sort of brand any anti-war protesters as in some way violent or criminal in some way, and uh, um, it just still didn't work. Despite all these tactics of the government, despite all their control of the mainstream media, despite all the major religious leaders with the honourable exception of Archbishop Mannix, that they were all supporting the war, and yet the the kind of networks that the anti-war, the, the, the labour movement, the, the socialist groups established, uh, the, the communications they established at, at grassroots level were sufficient to, to overcome all the misinformation and all the denigration and even the, the violence of the various um, soldiers that tried to break up the anti-war movements. All that was nullified. The, uh, the referendums were, were still won. So it's, a, it's an amazing outcome you know, when, when you consider... Both the fact that um, this this was one of those you know um, very few occasions when ordinary people had a say over you know, matters of war and peace, and at the same time were able to overcome the the kind of um, the extremely conservative and uh, attempts to censor them, attempts to intimidate them, attempts to put them in jail, able to come all overcome all that and, and uh, achieve the. A result, uh, an anti-war result in those two re- national referenda. Did Archbishop Mannix pay a price for this opposition later on? No, I don't think he did, no. He, he, his stature, if anything, increased. Uh, yes, yes. What about the others? What about um, Curtin? How did he, he end up? His stature also increased. Uh, he was, of course, placed in a very difficult position in the Second World War where he did actually um, agree to conscription, conscription for the direct defence of Australia and I think conscripts could be sent as far afield as, as Papua New Guinea. But of course that was a war which was you know, much more directly affecting <coughs> Australia you know, with the uh, you know, Japanese you know, bombing Darwin and so on. There's a much more direct threat. But even so, he kept the line between conscripts being sent to distant wars compared to conscripts being used directly uh, for the defence of Australia's own mainland and and uh, Papua New Guinea. And the reaction in Britain to these two referenda re- defeats? Well, they they were pretty um, disappointed. The Conservative government uh, at the time was disappointed. Um, no reactions? No recriminations? No, I'm not aware that uh, Australia was in, in some way... You know, it certainly wasn't cut out of the Commonwealth as a result <laughs> of... Uh, of um, deciding to put these matters to the people, no. 
Now, what's happening? What's the plans for this year and next year? The plans, uh, there's a uh, commemoration groups um, in um, Moreland, the Brunswick um, uh, Anti-Conscription Commemoration Committee uh, is organising a number of activities, including a conference and uh, a women's choir to fight Pentridge in the uh, commemoration of the, the one that happened when uh, Adela Pankhurst was in Pentridge. There's uh, various displays and uh, local students are going to be involved in uh, simulated debates from, from the time and uh, various other activities are planned of that nature. And I believe also the Trade Union, uh, Trade Hall Council, is organising a conference to commemorate uh, their role in the, uh, the defeat of those two referenda. I mean, it was absolutely crucial, the trade unionist role. And I mean, one of the uh, interesting things was the success was probably due to the fact that the various progressive and anti-war and labour uh, forces actually worked very closely together. Uh, they had you know, different takes, different views on some aspects, but it, it was being, you know, being prepared to work together uh, in, in the one campaign against the, you know, the referenda that I think really mattered and, and the you know, willingness to take the, you know, some sort of direct action, you know, call major demonstrations. That was all extremely important. And saving what is left of Pentridge's social heritage. Well, the Pentridge's social heritage has been virtually ignored. You know, the Pentridge site was uh, sold off to private developers. All they've done so far by way of preserving Pentridge heritage is just uh, some sort of um, Disney-style um, theme park thing of having ghost tours and uh, uh, celebrating the chopper reeds. Well, I wouldn't say celebrating, but uh, recording the, the chopper reeds, uh, you know, uh, as if that they're the only things that they think the public might be interested in. There's been, there was to have been a, a properly curated museum, Justin Madden, when he approved the latest ri- uh, round of high-rise development of Pentridge, this is in 2000, he promised there would be a museum and, and uh, there was an actual legal agreement between the developer and Heritage, Victoria, Heritage Council Victoria to, to establish such a, <coughs> a museum. Uh, part of the A Division, which was the old women's uh, division within Pentridge, was supposed to be set aside for a properly curated uh, museum, professional museum. Nothing happened. It, uh, you know, the state government, Heritage uh, Victoria, and uh, the local council have just basically ignored the, the fact that the developers have, have uh, totally refused to comply with any proper interpretation of the, the social history, the, the political role, the social... I mean, Pentridge was, of course, the, the number of indigenous prisons there was you know, well above average. It was... Uh, there's a whole, you know, sort of um, story about how Indigenous pr- uh, people have been oppressed through imprisonment in Pantridge, but also gays, of course, you know, right up until the 1960s, 70s were being put in jail. Even now they're, they're seeking to have the convictions expunged. I think that the current government is doing that. But um, there's a whole social history there that deserves turning and has been totally ignored. And, and the basic promises, you know, in exchange for the development around Pentridge, the basic promise that it would be a museum has been um, uh, totally broken and ignored. So um, just, just appalling. So we, you know, we have a campaign going against the, uh, the, the high-rise development, the 19-storey tower at Pentridge. Uh, the Save Cobra group is particularly leading that 
campaign. We had a meeting just uh, this week um, on Thursday. Uh, something like 110 people showed up, including local residents who bought into the area. And everyone is just appalled at this high-rise development and, and total contempt for the, the social history of, uh, of Pentridge, the, the, the neglect of the social history of Pentridge. And if people want to be involved in that campaign and also the commemoration, you don't have to live in the area? No, not at all. I mean, Pentridge is a, is a state icon. It's a it was the main jail for the whole of Victoria. I mean, it's equivalent to, it's our Port Arthur, if you like. And, I mean, no one would dream of, you know, having high-rise towers and, uh, and you know, 90-storey towers and timeshares at Port Arthur. I mean, uh, it, just, uh, it just boggles the mind that, uh, that the, the heritage values, that the... Uh, the incredible bluestone buildings that are so striking, the uh, the whole social history is being um, destroyed and forgotten. And how do people get involved? How do people get involved? Well, you could just go to the Save Coburg website, just type in Save Coburg on, on uh, Facebook or Google, uh, and you should be able to get in touch with uh, some of the, the people there, yes. Okay, thanks very much, Michael. No, no, pleasure, yes. And that's Michael Hamill-Green, who's a an anti-war activist way back to the um, Vietnam times and he's also a Moreland resident and active in the campaign to commemorate the 1916 and 1917 conscription victories for the people. And that website or Twitter or Facebook is Save Coburg. You're listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. <laughs> Straight Arrows Positive Women and Living Positive Victoria are pleased to announce the first Phoenix for Women. Phoenix for Women is a two-day workshop for women recently diagnosed with HIV or who are living with HIV and are now ready to connect in a safe and confidential environment. Across the two days, there'll be information on breaking down personal barriers, strategies to help deal with stigma and tools for building social connections. Saturday to Sunday, April 16th and 17th, 19th, five at Coventry House South Bank. Food and childcare is provided and financial assistance for long distance travel can be arranged. If you feel this is something for you or someone you know, please contact Positive Women on peer support at positivewomen.org.au or call 03-9863-8747. A 3CR supporter. What is the you are listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR with Jan Bartlett and it's time for our monthly segment with Dr Margie Vivas who is the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. I'd imagine that you would be over the years submitting many submissions into issues like the one I'm going to talk about now, the Senate Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade References Committee inquiry into the acquisition of F-35 joint striker fighters. The argument you use with all these would be about the same, wouldn't they? That it's such a diversion of money into war instead of peace. Yes, absolutely. Joint strike fighter is sort of tens of billions of dollars. I mean, the the initial outlays look like about $17 billion, but then they say you know, up to $50 billion in terms of maintenance. And this is huge amounts of money with enormous costs in terms of what could be spent in health and education and other you know, foreign aid. Also, the, the 
the issue with the joint strike fighters is that it, it meshes us even further with the United States defence process. So it makes it very difficult for Australia to have an independent foreign policy. And certainly with the America, we have gone into a number of wars that we may not otherwise have been involved in because of our alliance with the Americans. So the joint strike fighters will not only takes up huge amounts of money that could go to other very useful purposes, it's also limiting Australia's independence in terms of keeping peace. Um, the, the other issue, which we don't tend to put in our submissions because we're not experts in the area, but the other issue in terms of general concern is that the Joint Strike Fighter is, seems to be a very poor piece of technology and that the Canadians have withdrawn from purchase because they're concerned about the technology and... I don't know if any of your listeners listened to a uh, background briefing episode on the ABC on the Joint Strike Fighters, but that outlined a huge number of technical problems with the, with the plane and also that the outsourcing of the quality control, Australia has delegated that to America and America, I understand, has delegated that on to Lockheed Martin, who are the manufacturers. So in terms of quality control of what's happening anyway, that, that's also concerning. But yes, from the Medical Association Prevention of War perspective, the fact that they're spending so much more on defence and ramping up defence spending at a time when they're cutting back on foreign aid and cutting back on diplomacy, both of which are very good sort of preventive measures in terms of keeping societies functional. Yes, we do put in many submissions and certainly the cost to society is a big big factor in most of our submissions. And of course the other issue is that it's not only tying us into America's war, but the money for these weapons, it boomerangs back to the US. Yes. Yes, and it's, it's sort of like the gun debate writ large. You know, the more and more weaponry in the world, the more likely there is to be conflict. Um, the more and more foreign aid and diplomacy there is in the world, the more likelihood there is to be peace. It's a very gross generalisation, but to be bending so much money when Australia is cutting back on sort of a lot of really important community services, you have to reflect, is this a wise choice? And you'll never get any politician of any colour saying, well, if we didn't spend all this money on war, we would have money for other issues and we wouldn't have to raise taxes, we wouldn't have to do anything, just cut the so-called defence budget and we'd be fine. Well, they're planning to ramp up the defence budget now to sort of 2% of GDP, which is huge. It's really a massive increase and will lead Australia to have a very large arsenal. I mean, going from $32 billion this year to sort of $58 billion in the mid-20s. And that's a real concern, particularly in the context that they're raising defence to 2%. At the same time, they're planning to cut foreign aid to 0.21%, which is just a very shameful amount when we are such a relatively wealthy country. And if we're looking at the connection with the American war machine, we, going, we can't go past Pine Gap. The 50th anniversary of this installation is coming up? Yes, yes. Again, there's been massive expansion of the facilities at Pine Gap. Um, the Nautilus Institute put out a very good report on Pine Gap, if people want to look at it, where they showed that they really increased. Now they've got 33 antennae system and they're gathering data for things like the United States drone strikes. There's going to be a conference. The Independent and Peaceful Australia Network is putting on a conference in Alice Springs, on the 30th of September and the 1st of October to mark the 50th anniversary of Pine Gap because Pine Gap does tie Australia in again very closely with US defence policy and also we need to take responsibility for what that signal intelligence is being used for and as I said it includes drone strikes, mobile phone communications, 
missile telemetry, radio, microwave, satellite signals. There's a, a huge array of systems there to gather data and, and Australia, by gathering that data, is part of the whole. We have to take responsibility for what that data, the repercussions of gathering that data. Looking at the nuclear issue, there's the, the summit in Washington. I'm not sure whether it's finished yet, but the, the news we were coming out of it last week, it's a nuclear security summit, was that oh, we've got to be really careful that the weapon material doesn't get into the hands of terrorists. I'd just like to read a little bit of a, an article. In 2009, President Obama stood before an adoring crowd in the centre of Prague in the heart of Europe. He pledged himself to make the world free from nuclear weapons. People cheered and some cried. A torrent of platitudes flowed from the media. Obama was subsequently awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. It was all fake. He was lying. The Obama administration has built more nuclear weapons, more nuclear warheads, more nuclear delivering systems, more nuclear factories. Nuclear warhead spending alone rose higher under Obama than under any American president. The cost over 30 years is more than $1 trillion. Yes. The, the double speak on nuclear weapons is formidable, and it really uh, yes they signed he signed a START treaty with Putin in 2010, which was when it went to Congress. The START treaty was supposed to reduce the number of nuclear weapons. Congress would only pass that reduction in nuclear weapons if they were able to spend 350 billion in the next de- decade, and as you said, one trillion over the next 30 years, modernising the Americans' nuclear arsenal. So there is no sense that there's going to be any realistic disarmament in the treaties that have been put forward. And in terms of the US, the rhetoric is relentless efforts to improve the efficiency of the stockpile. Sorry, we're not interested in the efficiency of the stockpile, we're interested in less stockpile. I mean, things like Japan is very scary. They've they've made a big fuss at this nuclear security summit that they were going to cut their plutonium stores by half a ton and they'd ship that to America to be disposed of. But in fact, Japan is just about to open a new plutonium reprocessing plant that's going to produce up to eight tons of plutonium a year. And plutonium is incredibly toxic. You know, just a a piece of plutonium the size of an apple is enough to make a bomb that will kill hundreds of thousands of people. So the thought of eight tons of plutonium stockpiling every year, it's just uh, breathtaking and I'm very... Uh, I suppose on the flip side of that, we are probably closer to a nuclear weapons ban than we have been for several decades. There's an open-ended working group happening in Geneva that's a UN-mandated group that's meeting three times this year to try and get wording for a nuclear weapons ban. That wording be developed and then taken back to the United Nations. There are now so many countries who are aware of the appalling humanitarian impacts of any nuclear detonation. I'm hopeful that this process may yet lead to a nuclear weapons ban. And then, obviously, it's a two-stage process. Once you've got a nuclear weapons ban, then you need to introduce a whole lot of process to then remove the stockpiles and get an ability to check that people and nations are doing that. So there is good news as well as bad. (laughs) Looking at the so-called peaceful use of uranium, there's two anniversaries coming up. There's the fifth anniversary of the Fukushima accident, and there's the 30th anniversary of Chernobyl. The Fukushima disaster just keeps going. It's not stopped. It's something that feels like the anniversary of a continuing disaster. It's still leaking over 300 tonnes daily of, of contaminated water into the 
ocean. There's still over 100,000 people who are not able to go home, that they've lost their livelihoods, farmers who've lost farms that have been in their families for generations. And what's also scary is, and I might have spoken about this on an earlier occasion, that the Japanese government has made it legal for people to have, ordinary people to have 20 times the usual allowed exposure of radiation. So there's an ongoing public health issue on many fronts in Japan. Because even pregnant women and children are allowed to have 20 millisieverts, where most countries in the world will not allow them to have more than one millisievert each year. Um, and even at Chernobyl, um, people who were at risk of getting five millisieverts a year were evacuated. So for Japan to be legislating that 20 millisieverts is okay is really, from a public health perspective, fairly breathtaking and very concerning. And also with Chernobyl and Fukushima, the, the botanists that have got in there have found that there's sort of changes in the bird life, changes in the trees, changes in insects with deformed wings. Wild pig and deer populations have dropped. At Fukushima, there's shellfish and anemone and coastal life has really decreased up to 30 kilometres away from the plant. So these are major damages to the, to the environment. You were there in what year? I went in January, just after the event happened in March. What was interesting when I went then was that people were still very fearful of the food supply. And you go into a supermarket in Japan, they don't normally, the supermarkets would have rows and rows of fish to sell. There were all these empty benches, and then there was a small area of imported fish. The fresh vegetables, people were very careful to check. They didn't come from East Japan, where the Fukushima accident happened. I think it's, it's hard to... Imagine that population, they're a very resilient population, but to be having to be so mistrustful of their food supply was just another example of how Fukushima had sort of reverberated through Japan. Have you kept in touch with any of the people there? I have a friend who is living there. Certainly Akira Kawasaki is a leader of the Peace Boat Movement and he keeps in touch with Tillman Ruff, who's a very strong activist in this area and with the Medical Association for Prevention of War. And certainly Akira was instrumental in sort of marking this fifth anniversary by putting out a video showing that really this was an ongoing disaster the problem is not solved yet. That really nuclear power is so entrenched with government regulation or lack of regulation and corporate cost-cutting for profit-making. It's not a well-regulated industry and it's not uh, an industry that's necessarily safe in any country. There is an event on the 26th of April looking at the Chernobyl disaster. It's called Remembrance and Resistance. Can you give us a little bit of information about that? Yes, Bill Williams is going to be speaking at that and he'll again talk about the long-term damage that's been done in the Ukraine from the Chernobyl accident and the sort of urgency for us to really re-examine the, the nuclear industry. Both Chernobyl and Fukushima are illustrations of this technology which is very complex, does go wrong, and, and this will be supported by FO, who are also putting it on. And that's in um, the city. It's 23 Meyer Place in the city. It's um, 6.30 on Tuesday, the 26th of April. And then a, a week before that, there's Anzac Eve. Yes, we've got an Anzac Eve event happening at Brunswick Secondary College, and people are very welcome to come. It's um, titled The Casualties of War, and we've got three very good speakers. We've got Michael, Professor Michael Hamill Green, who'll talk about the anti-conscription campaigns that happened in 1916 and 1917. We've got Peter Wig, Dr Peter Wig, who's worked with Medicine Software and Chair, and who's a psychiatrist,
psychiatrist who's got a very interesting presentation he does about how we talk about war. And then we'll also have the mayor of Moreland, Samantha Ratnam, talking on refugees as a consequence of war. And we've also got a couple of choirs, the Brunswick College Choir and Singers Without Borders. If people are interested in going to that event, they can call 902319158 or email EO, that's our executive officer, at mapw.org.au. So that's April 22nd at 7.30 at Brunswick Secondary College in Brunswick. And then there'll be the ongoing events recording the 100th years of the 100th yes, year of cons- yes, conscription. Yes, yes. I think if you go to the Moreland City Council website, they've got quite a few events that they're planning to put on, and, and that would be a good place to go in terms of the anti- memorial for the anti conscription campaigns of 1916 and 1917. Okay, is there anything else? Oh, well, we have been busy with submissions. We're still putting in a submission again for the response to the. South Australian Royal Commission, but yes, there's so much going on that what's happening in Yemen with the children in Yemen is, is, is very depressing. And the trouble is because Saudi Arabia is, you know, an ally of the United States, so that becomes an ally of us, so we don't hear about what's happening in Yemen. No, no, and, and not only is there sort of over a thousand children killed in the bombings, there's sort of 21 million people in, in need of aid, and, and lots of children dying of malnutrition. So a recent UNICEF report came out and pointed out that the airstrikes are doing huge damage to the population, and in particular the children. There's peace talks scheduled, but neither side's particularly hopeful. And that's Dr Margie Beavis, the president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, and that phone number for the tickets to the Anzac Eve concert. 9023 1958 or eo at mapw.org.au. The time right now is 4.48 and this is 3CR. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Earlier this morning, I spoke briefly to Professor Emeritus James Petrus in New York and began by asking him his views on the significance of the visit of Obama to Cuba with his delegation filled with corporate CEOs. Well, it was very important in the sense that uh, it allowed Cuba to begin developing its uh, business ties with certain elements in the U.S. market, especially the uh, tourist business. And I think that has a, a substantial income on Cuba. On the other hand, I think we also uh, should recognize that Obama is encouraging uh, the uh, capitalist interest to play a major role in Cuba against the uh, plans for uh, continuing the uh, socialist 
economy. I think that is two things going here. Cuba is trying to retain its uh, developed social programs, health, education, and uh, less affluence among the uh, upper classes. But at the same time, Cuba is facing with the U.S. government, which is beginning to uh, encourage dissidents and uh, oppositionists who are pro-capitalist, pro-Washington, and uh, they are increasingly trying to undermine Cuba's change, and Obama is playing a role in that. So there's two things going on. One is positive in the sense that Cuba can uh, improve its economic standing and opportunities. On the other hand, uh, it's uh, also raising serious questions about Cuba's capacity to uh, resist from uh, Washington uh, in Washington uh, capitalist policies. And if the Republicans win at the end of the year, what difference will that make? Well, it's hard to say. I think uh, Donald Trump would probably uh, not cause any grief because uh, he would be interested in the economic changes. On the other hand, uh, the uh, Cubans that uh, came over to this country, they probably would try to scuttle the uh, growing ties with Cuba. So I, I think the situation would not change if the, uh, the Democrats won, either Sanders or uh, Hillary Clinton governments. It wouldn't hurt if Trump got elected, but it certainly would be a problem if one of the uh, Cuban candidates would win the election. Can you talk about the different approaches to the visit by Rayal Castro and then by Fidel Castro? Well, I think Fidel Castro is uh, quite concerned about uh, Obama's uh, intervention in Cuban politics, trying to uh, raise issues about uh, Cuban uh, dissidents, Cuban young people, uh, to encourage them uh, to uh, support the West and to uh, separate and uh, denounce the uh, socialist values in Cuba. So Mr. Uh, Castro, Fidel Castro, is not at all pleased with uh, the way in which Obama in intruded into Cuban politics and uh, tried to uh, undercut uh, the uh, Cubans in, uh, during a visit. However, Fidel did say that it's a good thing that Cuba now doesn't have as much tax by the uh, uh, Obama regime. So on the one hand, he's, he's uh, called to, to attention on Obama. On the other hand, he, he doesn't want to scuttle the uh, uh, arrangements that are working their way through the system. Obama spent most of his speech telling Cuba that they should live under a US-style democracy and a capitalist system and concentrate on human rights and political prisoners. Hypocrisy all round? Well, it's a question of uh, Obama trying to make points as far as uh, human rights, and the Cubans have uh, called it to attention of uh, the U.S. government, particularly the way in which... Uh, 
It has uh, engaged in uh, uh, shootings of uh, uh, black people and other types of uh, incidents that have been going on perennially. But the uh, Cubans don't want to get into a tit-for-tat. They're sort of summoning uh, the Cubans to uh, be on good behavior. They really are interested in ending the uh, economic limitations on uh, Cuban trade. So I I think the uh, U.S. is getting a free ride on these issues of uh, human rights, even though uh, they don't deserve it. Turning to Brazil, it would appear that the country is in turmoil economically, politically and socially. There has been some issues of, what can we call it, crooked operations by some of the political leaders of both parties, including the Workers' Party. But the main effort has been to uh, operate a uh, coup d'etat against the uh, government of uh, the uh, president. And I think she has no, there's no evidence that she's been involved. Rousseff Dilema has not been found uh, amiss on any corrupt scandal, nor has uh, Lula, for that matter. They claim that uh, he got a uh, a hotel and he got a uh, beach lounge uh, hotel. None of this has been proven. So that the uh, government has uh, organized an attempt to uh, scandalize the government and uh, impeach them. And this is leading to a major confrontation between the uh, supporters of the workers' government who are facing uh, an economic crisis but are also being uh, slandered and smeared by the uh, right-wing candidates who are attempting to oust them, engage in the kind of coup d'etat. This is going to be a major confrontation that has uh, unforeseen consequences. But isn't this also a workers' party that's done a little for the workers? Well, the Workers' Party is not really a, a, a Workers' Party. It's a center-right administration at best that has increased uh, wages and uh, reduced uh, unemployment for uh, poor people, included uh, health programs for children, etc. But they also have uh, allowed for extremely wealthy uh owners of the uh, the dairy industry. There have been uh, huge uh, soya plants and uh, meat business. So they're multi-billion dollar businesses that have uh, also succeeded. Now with the fall in prices for uh, many of the goods, uh, the markets have uh, depleted and the uh, government uh, and the government is in a very difficult situation. So it, it wasn't really a, a, a socialist government, a leftist government. It was both supporting the workers and the poor people, but also supporting the very wealthy people. And now that the market is, is going downhill, the uh, government is attempting to uh, uh, cut back on social spending, but it doesn't have... Uh, the kind of backing from the right that it was expecting earlier. And this is why the right 
and big business has uh, come to the fore now and uh, are looking for a pretext to oust the government. It's a very violent society. One figure I've read is that between 1980 and 2013, almost half a million young people aged 15 to 25 were killed by guns. Yes, Brazil has a uh, very long history of uh, violence, especially because a lot of the young people, especially of African descent, do not get the opportunities in the schools and in the educational institution and further. So uh, a lot of them are uh, living in slum neighborhoods. Some of them are engaged in uh, dope and uh, drugs, but uh, a lot of the uh, people in neighborhoods are assaulted by police and military officials. So it claims to have a great deal of uh, unity of blacks and whites, but it's not the case. Brazil is a very racist society that discriminates against African uh, Brazilians, and this is true except for the few exceptional agents of uh, the uh, football teams. Do you believe the president will still be here next year or she'll be gone? Well, it's hard to say. We're in the midst of a major confrontation. The right wing is trying to uh, impeach the government in the next couple of weeks, and the government is resisting. It's uh, a cut-and-dry confrontation, and and it's hard for me to predict what will happen. It seems on the surface that the right wing will have enough votes to uh, call for an impeachment, but the Supreme Court so far has not indicated whether it will allow for the impeachment. So it's a very dangerous and and explosive situation, but uh, the pressures are building up to uh, impeach Delma Rousseff and uh, to jail Lula, but it's they still have uh, mass support resisting against these measures. So I'm not sure exactly which way it's going to turn. We'll know within next month. Definitely a country to watch. That's Professor Emeritus Jones Petrus first talking about Cuba and then the situation in Brazil. Just back from Timor-Leste is environmentalist Lee Tan with some good news and some not-so-good news. Firstly, the good news. In this Timor, I have been working with uh, Habura's Foundation, which is Friends of the Earth East Timor, and I've been with them for, for a long time, even when I was working for the Australian Conservation Foundation, or ACF. But I continue now as a freelance technical advisor. In the last couple of years, we've been involved in developing and building uh, a very simple, adapted, so-called constructed wetland wastewater management system. It's worked fairly well, and I think it has a lot of potential to assist a country like Timor where there's no centralized sanitation and wastewater management. It helps to rebuild or restore some of the um, ecological balance in the country. And as you know, as a new country, they're struggling 
to cope economically and in every way. So wastewater management, sanitation have always been left on the wayside. So we see this as a good potential. Another one of our projects, which has actually worked very well as well, is uh, turning waste from paper, from offices, wood waste like you know, wood shavings and sawdust from uh, furniture shops, uh, as well as uh, agriculture waste like coffee, husk, um, coconut shells, all sorts of things like that, which we crush into tiny particles and then soak them and compact them into what we call a biomass brigades using a manual machine which we bought from China. And it's worked really, really well because it's manual. They can easily repair it when it's broken. So we've gone through the pilot phase, and hopefully later on this year we can look into marketing it, promoting it, and then perhaps to look at setting up cottage industry in uh, various parts of Timor. And which areas have these two developments happened? Near Dili, in Habura's training centre, in a town called Hera. It's only about, what, 30 minutes' drive on, on, on the hills, and yeah, so Haburas, through Dimitrio, the one of the founders, and also the winner of the Goldman Prize from before, he bought a piece of land in Hera and set up the Hera Training Center for Environment and Natural Resources. So we're also using that center as a demonstration site to look at appropriate technology, uh, low-carbon type of solution to some of uh, Timor's development challenges. Are you inviting people from the other areas of Timor to come and learn? Absolutely. In fact, with the wastewater system, we also did it in two other community-based ecotourism sites. One near to Tuala in the coast in a very popular tourism site. Another one in Highland uh, in Mobisi. So we, we're dealing with three different ecosystems and we managed to adapt it to the local condition and make it so simple that it can be replicated. Uh, yes, and we, we have people from all of these sites plus the government through different workshops. I have been helped by two of my good friends from Australia, Paul Baker, who is a, a plumber by trade, and also Damien Cook, who is a field naturalist. They've both given their pro bono time, and uh, because of that, you know, we, we were able to achieve a lot with very little money. And the opposite to that is the new cement plant. Yes, that's actually a very worrying project. I didn't know about it until I was about to leave Timor, and uh, I was told about it. And uh, when I checked up on what it really is, it really shocked me. It's going to be one of the biggest cement in this region, producing 5,000 tonnes a day of uh, cement, dry cement, or they call it clinker. It's owned by a Perth company. You know, they call themselves TL Cement. But the parent company is a company, is a developer, a large developer in Perth called Buckridge Group. And uh, this company, when I checked up, is not your average developer. They're quite nasty. They've taken the previous Labour government to court for delaying their projects. And they have taken up defamation suit against a worker who, who posted a you know, critical comment about a company. So it tells you a little bit about 
the nature of this company. It worries me because they're going to take so much limestone, so much clay from Baikal, which is a very you know limestone heavy country, but it's very close to where people live, and they're going to leave a huge hole about five kilometer in diameter and ten meter deep. It's very dangerous. And what they're going to do with it, we don't know yet. At the moment, I believe this company is carrying out all kinds of environmental impact assessment. But my fear is the majority of the Timorese would not understand what's in those documents when they come out. We had a session at Haburas to discuss this. I had to really explain it clearly what it meant. And before they were, they knew there was this huge project, but they had no idea what it it was all about. When I explained to them, look, this company is going to produce five thousand tons of cement every day, and they couldn't imagine how much is five thousand tons. So I had to point out to them, one of the trucks they own, which is Indonesian made, is uh, it's got one ton capacity. I say five thousand of those truck. They were shocked. And every day they will extract seven thousand tons of limestone. Again, you know, I use the same truck and say, "Well, every day they're going to take seven thousand truckload of those limestone." And they were shocked, and they wanted to know more. So I'm actually going to try and uh, draft a document so that they can actually inform their government, inform civil society, inform local people. And leading up to that Balkal cement, the reason how I found out was I was asked to give a two-day environmental impact assessment from a critical perspective to the government district environmental officer. When in the process of me carrying out that workshop, I realized that they've got very low capacity in terms of technical knowledge, even in terms of knowledge of their own law. Even though the documents are available, but it's in it's written in Portuguese and translated into English, and they had no idea their jobs, what their jobs entails. They have no idea about duty of care. So I went through all of that with them. Very challenging. How far advanced are the plans? They are doing environmental impact assessment. They've done a lot of samplings and what have you. They have just started to do public consultation. In early January, I've just checked with Timo. They say they haven't heard any more from the company, but you know the consultation they did at a community level is very, very minimal. People had no idea. So we're hoping through civil society, the reality of the scale of the project and the impacts will be made known to the people. There's never been anything like that in Timor before. Oh, not at all. I mean, I agree that Timor, as a new country, they do need access to their own cement. That cement's going to go out the country. Absolutely. Another issue is seventy percent of the cement produced will be sold in Australia, where the company will make the bulk of the profit. Well, they have uh, allocated about thirty percent for domestic use. I'm not sure how much they will be paying in royalty for the limestone. Another worrying thing is they're going to build a 30 megawatt coal power station in Timor. Where's the coal coming from? Australia. I mean, we just had the Paris Agreement back in early December, 
Where is that going? <laughs> I mean, you know, we kept seeing data, statistics showing us how precarious the whole climate change scenario is. You know, hottest February in in in、uh, Melbourne or in Victoria, all that sort of other data, and yet we are promoting another coal power station in a country which is otherwise low carbon, like Timor Leste, and using our coal mined here against the majority of the people's wishes. How is the cement going to get out of the hole? I know there's trucks, but where are the trucks going to go to? Well, they will excavate it from、uh, the the ore body. They will truck it to the cement plant, which is not far away. I think it's only a couple of kilometers or ten kilometers or less than that, five maybe, from the plant. And then the same company will be building a port. So they have this whole vertical integration concept where they will control everything from raw material to transport to export. To Australia, and then in Australia, Buckridge, being a developer, they will have this very cheap supply, and presumably very reliable supply, and in abundance from Timor. So you've got environmental concerns on、mm. the ground, and you've also got environmental concerns with the new jetty. Yes, precisely, and also in Baikal area, the limestone body is a very major hydrological. Body as well, limestone formation from a geological point of view and hydrological point of view, it's very complex. It's not easy to study them to really understand the real impact. When you're digging out a big hole in one part, you may cause water or the you know hydrological changes, which means that the people may lose their springs in some parts. And you know, water is essential element for people's survival. And in a dry country like Timor, it's unthinkable if they lose their water supply. What about the building of the jetty? What problems could that entail? Well, again, you know, I have seen some preliminary terms of reference for the EIA for the different parts, but not in details yet. We、we'll、need to know whether there are important coral reefs. Majority of the people in Baikal depend on fishery、uh, for their income and livelihood, so all of that needs to be taken into consideration. Whether or not the the port will cause siltation that will reduce the fish population, that will change the marine environment, and also the big vessels coming in and out. In an otherwise very clean and pristine marine environment, all of that needs to be taken into consideration, and of course the pollution, dust, cement production, as we know, has huge dust problem, air pollution problem, and noise problem when they blast the limestone,、uh, all that sort of stuff, and also when you have a coal power plant on top of that, you're going to have problems with particulates that are carcinogenic. That can cause cancer, and in a poor country like Timor, are we really adding economic value to the community, or are we really going to create another health issue and social problems for the country? Apart from yourself, who else is ringing the bells? 
Nobody in Australia, as far as I know. So I'm also trying to start doing something, but I'm really stretched for time because I've got my own study to deal with and other campaigns to deal with, all on a pro bono basis. So yeah, it's quite, it's very challenging, but I'll try and do what I can. And who could you get to assist you? I will let the Friends of the Earth group know. Habura is being a foe group. Uh, they can call on their allies. I will probably approach the feeder to look at some of the labor rights issue. Once we establish some ground truth or whatever uh, support in Timor, then it's easier for them to tap into their own civil society. Yeah, the Timor civil society at this stage is very important. And of course, the Australian as well, particularly those in Western Australia. Probably people who are concerned with uh, coal power plant, and also in Western Australia, the Conservation Council, being a Perth-based company, hopefully they will come on board. And also the WA Union, uh, they, they're quite good and I met them before. Do you believe the, the government and his team have actually got their head around what the project means? No, I think they're desperate to look for alternative economic activity and investment outside of the oil and gas. And that was very clearly promoted by the cement company. I do agree that Timor needs to diversify its economic activities. But this kind of large-scale mega cement plant that's going to actually take away their very valuable uh, limestone and clay resources to enrich a already very rich and wealthy corporation in Australia the way to go. It's just like Australia at the moment is uh, being totally unfair to Timor by claiming sea boundary against international convention using uh, the continental shelf concept. And, you know, in that process, we are ripping off Timor of their oil and gas income. So I think Australia has to come clean to be fair to Timor by negotiating or agreeing to a boundary according to international law. I mean, you know, we are supposed to be a law-abiding country. Surely that's the minimal we can do. If that boundary is fairly negotiated, where we are fair to Timor, Timor will have additional revenue from the other oil and gas resources. I mean, I don't personally agree with fossil fuel, but in this case, in Timor, it is a, a survival issue. It's their per capita carbon emission or footprint is nothing compared to what we are doing here, uh, what we have here in Australia. In terms of the, the Timo cement, it can be scaled down. You know, it can be scaled down. Perhaps it's not going to be as profitable for uh, Buckeridge Group, but it needs a, a medium-scale, small-scale cement that will really benefit Timor, but that will also sustain the, the limestone resources, not only just for this generation, for, but for many generations to come. And there's another connection between Timor and Australia with a, a large project in the north. Land grabbing. <laughs> now, this is an interesting one. A developer who originally came from a small town in Timor, he's, he's not an indigenous Timorese, but rather he's actually um, of Chinese descent coming from Macau or somewhere as a, an immigrant to Timor. 
And he left Timor before Timor was take was occupied by the Indonesian in 1975. He landed in、um, Darwin. His name is Jeb Kongsu, and、uh, his original town in Timor is Malbara. It's, it's a small town. He he had a grocery shops and a numerous type of mixed business in Timor. He was quite successful. He left Timor. When he realized that Timur would soon be at war, and he landed in Darwin just after Cyclone Tracy, and he, being an astute strategic businessman, he set up furniture shops. Of course, he made loads of money from the Darwin disaster, and、uh, from that he progressed to become a developer. He in Darwin he already built one of the shopping centers. I couldn't remember the name, but it was a very ugly-looking concrete jungle. And then, when Timor gained its independence, he returned to Timor again, bought land near the airport, and built this well, fairly large in Timor's term apartment and shopping mall called the Timor Plaza. Several families had to be evicted. And the eviction process was rather unjust, according to local NGOs. This company, the Jape, they or this family had already earned a fairly nasty reputation. And then we found out that he bought a huge tract of land along the coast, not far from Dili. Those are potentially prime real estate. At the moment, they are marginal land because you know the land ownership is a little bit disputed. Timo hasn't actually had a clear-cut land law, and he has been using this、uh, weakness in the law to try and get in first by paying off people who lives around there. They may not be the rightful traditional owner, but he would pay people off, and he would build up fence very quickly to claim his land and start to do a lot of damage to the environment in Timo. All coastal land, particularly if they're mangrove, are protected. And yet, in his case, he seems to be able to get away with doing anything he liked, just because he's got a very close friendship with Shanana Gushma, or rather, Kirsty Sword.、Uh, one of his daughters sits on the board that Kirsty Sword has set up for a foundation to reduce poverty and for to help women and so on and so forth. He has been very strategic in the way he operated. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. It's Jan Bartlett, and I'm speaking with environmentalist Lee Tan. And then in Darwin, he's embroiled in a very controversial heritage site that was handed over, fought for eight years by the Larakia Aboriginal community, and then in 1979, Goth Whitlam handed it back to the Larakia people. And the surrounding Aboriginal community. Again, this company has managed to talk to only a handful of the Aboriginal people in through one of the corporations, and、uh, they signed over a lease of a large area of land, something like three hundred hectares. That land is supposed to be a heritage site, although the status hasn't been confirmed. But it is clearly an Aboriginal land. And again, he's using you know this dirty tactic of paying off a few people, wanting to build a, a medium industrial kind of concrete jungle there, shopping mall, all sorts of things like that. And the Larakia people, I mean, 
being urban Aboriginal, again, you know, there are lots of politics and some of them are basically surviving from hands to mouth and has got very limited capacity to fight. Fortunately, they have a very good ally in an anthropologist who did his uh, PhD in the area. And Bill Day, he's now retired, but he's been very much supporting the Larakia people to raise the issue. Uh, last Tuesday, submission was due to try and uh, get the government to clearly classify the area as a heritage site to prevent developers from coming in to land grab and to put more concrete jungle over burial sites, over cultural sites and also sites of ecological significance. I have been there and I've seen a lot of photos from uh, the local uh, non-Aboriginal residents. They hold the area very dearly because it's a very important and uh, quite significant kind of uh, piece of green land in in, uh, in the heart of Darwin. Could um, this set a precedent? Yes, absolutely. I mean, if Aboriginal land that was won through previous land claims you know, become easy target for land grabbing, it can definitely open a floodgate to other similar areas. Uh, and developers will always uh, take advantage of, you know, confusing Aboriginal politics, seizing the, the weaknesses of the community, because many Aboriginal people, because of the historical situation, are struggling to survive. It's difficult for them to fight a very well-resourced, very strategic type of uh, business venture, and aggressive as well. And what's the role of the NT government? The NT government, as many people know who, who understand politics in that part of the world, at the moment is marginally corrupt. They have actually, by right, knowing that it is an Aboriginal land, they should have checked with the Heritage Council. They basically gave permit to the developer without going through due processes as usual. They accepted the argument from the developers without really going through the administrative process that they should be following. And that's what we're challenging now. Where are you challenging it? In the courts? Um, through the Heritage Council at this stage. And also, as we all know, these uh, the current neoliber- neoliberal government, either under Abbots or, or Turnbull had cut fundings for community groups like the Environmental Defenders Office and all that sort of, and environmental groups all over the country. So that also make the campaign very weak because, you know, they've lost support from green groups and uh, legal services and so forth. So it is a struggle. We don't know, but at the moment we try, we're hoping that the Heritage Council will come clean to exercise their duty of care. And who runs the Heritage Council? I have no idea. <laughs> Obviously, they're not as uh, competent or maybe they, they feel disempowered. Darwin, especially, is going through a development boom. Some of us might have heard that the Port of Darwin's been leased to the Chinese which is very ironical, really. I have no idea how that had happened. It shows you that kind of government that's running the place. And a small department like the Heritage Council wouldn't be feeling very empowered in this situation. Let's turn to Malaysian politics, getting dirtier by the minute. <laughs> that's a minefield. And, you know, honestly, it's, the whole country is now run by a bunch of mafia. 
led by somebody, someone who is very well groomed by the previous prime minister, Mahathir. In Mahathir's reign, as we, we some of the, of the listeners here who's been following Malaysian politics might remember, you know, he arrested hundreds of social activists without trial under the Internal Security Act and so on and so forth. And at the same time, he also eroded the judiciary system. He stole the seal from the High Court judge and sacked all the judges and put in government-appointed judges. And from then on, the country is beyond the law. And he's been known in some way to help himself with uh, kickbacks from big projects and uh, all his sons are strategically placed in lucrative businesses in Malaysia. The oil and gas, petroleum ventures in Malaysia are mostly owned by one or the other of his sons. So, I mean, there's a bit of a power struggle at the same time that, you know, this huge major international scale corruption scandal surfaced through the work of the prime minister. It's a huge amount of money, though, isn't it? Massive. According to the Swiss Attorney General, four billion US was involved. The country's sovereign fund, one MDB, which was set up by the current Prime Minister Najib, they had at least one US billion dollars in deficit. I mean, no sovereign fund in the world would run at a deficit of that scale. The money has to be stolen or misappropriated. Because sovereign funds usually generate more money, and that's the whole idea of sovereign funds. Many banks have been implicated. Some of the senior bankers in some banks had already been sacked. There are mo- many more investigations happening in Singapore, in Australia, in America, and also in in uh, Switzerland and Alpa- and also the UK. And Mahathir has turned against the Prime Minister. Yes, he's threatened to sue the Prime Minister. I don't know how he's going to do it. Uh, maybe he's got friends among some of the High Court judges. I don't know. But who dare to challenge the Prime Minister now? Because the previous, the late public prosecutor, just a day before he was due to serve the charge sheet against Prime Minister Najib, he went missing and then within a week his body was found in an oil drum, cemented and probably killed cold-blooded alive in that very cruel way. The program at Four Corners didn't pick that up, but I suspect he was treated especially cruelly because he was a gay in Malaysia, is a very, very homophobic society. And I would say that the thugs who got him deliberately torture him because of his um, homosexuality. And that was really horrible. And I think it really sent shockwave to many people in Malaysia. And it means that if you dare to challenge a system, you face death. And that's not the first murder that we've seen. That's linked to the Prime Minister, of course, for those people who's watched the Four Corners. So what you're saying is that many people in Malaysia must be living in fear. Absolutely. I mean, I go to Malaysia a lot. I have to have a different identity in order to enter the country. In all my campaign work, I use a different identity just to protect myself and also my family, I guess, and also for me to continue to to work there on campaigns work. So, yeah, it's not a very pleasant country. And that's also why I remained in Australia and I didn't return to Malaysia because I knew the country is going down the tube and that I couldn't really do a lot if I had lived there. 
that perhaps I can, you know, act in some solidarity way by living overseas, get myself educated and skilled and resourced and so and so forth. How far can it go down from here, though? You think it's just just about rock bottom now? I think it might be a while. I think Najib is uh, Najib's support eventually will fall apart as more and more bankers overseas get charged put into jail or whatever, because so far he's been able to concoct a lies that the money that entered into his accounts are donations. Although he couldn't really quite prove that, but as more and more people involved with, uh, that are linked with the M- 1MDB scandal get charged in their respective country, it will show that his lies hold no ground and it would be very difficult for him to continue. That was only the last, you know, series of yes. corruption scandals, wasn't it? Yes, of course. I mean, even the Linus deal, we felt there was corruption involved. But it was difficult, as usual, when it comes to corruption to prove it, unless you've got access to very sensitive information, which in Malaysia is difficult to get because of the Official Secret Act, which is a total opposite to our Freedom of Information Act here in Australia. Yes, I was wondering how much information about these cases that the the ordinary person knows in Malaysia. Well, everyone say the government is corrupt in a general sense. They all know because to get a license, if you want to do it quickly, you have to pay to bribe the right officers and so on. But in terms of that kind of grand corruption, I think, yeah, it really opens up their eyes how bad it is. They felt parlors in some way. I mean, they had gone to the street to demonstrate, to call for a clean government and so on and so forth, but nothing much has eventuated. It is difficult because Malaysians are not used to the kind of uprising like you see in Arab Springs and other countries or in the Philippines. And Malaysians are not that well organized from a social movement perspective because of very draconian laws that are in place thanks to Mahathir and also the British government before when they were trying to cram down on uh, uh, the Communist Party of Malaysia. So it's been really challenging for the country. I think many Malaysians, if they can, they would leave the country because they couldn't, especially the non-Muslim Malay Uh, because there's also an element of racial discrimination at that low community level, not so much at a high level. Everyone's involved in the scandal of any cultural backgrounds. I would like to think that there are hopes for change, and I've seen some really quality member parliaments from the opposition party. A couple of the states have been taken over by the coalition, opposition, and they're well run. So hopefully that kind of provides some kind of benchmark and standard for the rest of the population to see that you can create and build a clean country. Where did the sultans come into all this? Well, it's interesting. Only one sultan so far had spoken out. The sultan's from the southern state of Johor. I guess he's always been fairly outspoken and his states is not free from corruption, but being close to Singapore, the the states actually get quite a lot of um, spin-off from the wealth and from the economic boom that's been happening in Singapore for decades. And I guess, you know, to facilitate business and, and investment, they have to be a little bit cleaner to operate. 
So he's been quite critical and public with his criticism of the current scandal of the prime minister and so on and so forth. Not directly, but you know, through very subtle speeches and so forth. I'm not sure if the rest of the sultans will join him because they also involve in that same abuse of power, you know, with illegal logging, logging concessions, exploitation of natural resources and so on and so forth. I mean, for example, the Linus project in Kuantan, in the state of Pahang, is very clearly also linked with the sultans' gambling debt. What about the bauxite? Oh, yes, that bauxite development. There's a moratorium now, which should end in April, I think, a three-month moratorium. Hopefully, the demand has eased from China because Indonesia is starting to process their own bauxite. I think the demand in China might have eased and the price might not warrant that kind of mad gold rush or bauxite rush that we've seen that has caused a lot of damages to the environment already. And just to finish, Leetan, we have to remember that this is the country that the Australian government wants to send Mm -hmm. asylum seekers to. Indeed. I I think there'll be a lot of abuses of human rights because in that country, we see all these cold-blooded murder linked to the Prime Minister, very top office of the um, political hierarchy. How can you guarantee that refugees or asylum seekers will be treated with uh, humanity. I mean, we've got one hired killer in Villawood Detention Centre at the moment because if he say he claimed that if he had been returned to Malaysia, he would be executed for his uh, murder of uh, the so-called mistress of the Prime Minister. So, yeah, it's not very pleasant. <laughs> And thanks to environmentalist Lee Tan. I'm Jermaine Greer, and you're listening to 3CR Treaty Now. In Melbourne recently, a demonstration was held outside the Grand Hyatt Hotel where recently retired Lieutenant General Benny Ganst was dining with Melbourne Jewish community members to raise money for Israel. But to many, he is a war criminal presiding over the Israeli Defence Force during the 2014 bombing of Gaza and other activities against the Palestinian people. Alex Nissen is well aware of Benny Ganst. Alex is a Jewish, Israeli and Australian human rights and peace activist, a founding member of Women in Black and many other human rights groups in Israel and Australia, and no stranger to demonstrating against the actions of the Jewish state for violations of the human rights of Palestinians. I spoke with Alex recently and the interview will be in two parts commencing today. I asked her first about her time living in Israel. I was living in Israel in the 80s. I lived there for about five years. Ended up becoming part of a women's organisation. What took you there? I grew up in a Jewish environment and I went to a Jewish youth movement that called itself socialist and educated me to going to live on a kibbutz or a commune in Israel. 
and I followed that path because I, you know, like, I was very attracted at a very young age to the concept of socialism and working for the greater collective and not working for myself, but, you know, contributing to a community. And so I went to live in Israel. I migrated, basically. Ended up with Israeli citizenship. And I think part of it was I was young. My capacity to analyse was there, but not as strong as what it is today. And I think learning to critique and analyse is a matter of the environment you grow up in and who teaches you what. I think it should be compulsory in all primary schools and high schools in Australia. But I went to live in Israel. The youth movement believed in a two-state solution, Jerusalem as the capital of both Israel and Palestine, and it believed in the 67 borders. The youth movement still exists. They still believe in the same things. But the concept of a two-state solution with Jerusalem as the capital of both has morphed into something completely different. That was the beginning of my process. I went to live in Israel and I lived on a kibbutz and I lived on a kibbutz for about a year and a half. And then it came time for me to become a member of the kibbutz and I wasn't quite ready to take on the responsibility. I actually didn't see the future of the community at the time because of I was working six days a week and then once a month you'd be working seven days because you have to work on a Saturday and so I didn't see a future of get life getting easier. I saw a future of life getting harder. That kibbutz commune now has morphed into something that's privatised. It's changed. People own their own houses. You can have cars. Kids sleep with their parents. So there's been a radical shift from you know its original ideology to where it is now. How difficult was it to leave? It was easy. I moved into the city. I, there was an article in the paper about a women's refuge in Haifa and I rang them up because I wanted to do some voluntary work and, you know, the woman in charge of that happened to be Australian and I came into the city and then I decided I was going to move into the city. I did voluntary work from the kibbutz for about half a year and then I moved into the city and then I joined the women's movement, the feminist movement, and then the feminist movement in the end led me, was the beginning of the Intifada in 87, which is the Palestinian uprising. And then I ended up joining a whole lot of different women's organisations and other organisations that were generic against the occupation. And at that time, we founded Women in Black in Israel. Talk about Women in Black. Women in Black started in Jerusalem and then it started in Haifa. And the ideology behind Women in Black is its no to violence as a solution to conflict. Its basis is that each women in black group, where regardless of wherever it is, would make its own independent decisions. So you don't need to come together to make collective decisions. You can make your own independent decisions. And when we started, we stood in black in silence in Haifa and that was because we didn't want to apply for a license to stand because if we applied for a license to stand the government and the police would have just said no. So standing silently meant we could just stand there as a bunch of women and we didn't have very radical signs but we had no to violence, no to the occupation, women against violence in general and women pro-discussion. Nothing there radical, and at the time that we started, we didn't even suggest who we should be talking to. We just spoke about the fact that we should talk. On a weekly basis, we stood in Haifa in one particular area, and what I learnt from that experience 
experience was the power of women to to make a very simple message. Unfortunately, the Israeli community, particularly Israeli men, Jewish men, because not all Israelis are Jewish, and it's really important to emphasise that, were incredibly offended by women just standing holding these, what I call generic signs, because none of them were radical. You know, women pro-discussion, women against the occupation was the most radical sign at the, at the time, and no to violence are not what I consider radical signs. And we were systemically abused every single week. I mean, I don't enjoy going to demos and I don't enjoy going to vigils. I do it because I think it's important. I do it to support the other women. And I do it because, you know, I know that someone on the other side of the world who sees a photo of, say, us standing in Women in Black in Melbourne will go, somebody cares. So it's the least that I can do to say that there are people out there doing stuff. But it's not something I enjoy because more often than not, when we were standing in Israel, the abuse was sexual orientated, it was misogynistic, and it was incredibly abusive. In relation to abuse, you know, we were constantly threatened with being raped and we should be raped by a Jewish man as opposed to an Arab man. We were Arafat's prostitutes. You know, the sexualization and the demonization and the reduction to sexual violence because we were standing there peacefully holding signs had a long-term impact on my capacity to, to look at Jewish-Israeli men on an equal footing. I've struggled with really negotiating not all men are bad. Not all Jewish-Israeli men are bad and misogynistic, but when you're so abused on such a regular basis, it took me a lot of reprogramming my brain and spending time with good men to try and combat the violence and the aggression that I experienced. Now, having said that, we stand in Women in Black in Melbourne and we founded Women in Black in, in Israel in the late 80s opposed to the occupation and that was just one of the groups. And then it spread throughout Israel and now Women in Black is in about 150-something countries around the world and each country takes their own personalised issues. So it's in India, it's in South America. Once every two years there's an International Women in Black conference. I think the last one was in India, the one before that was in Colombia, where women from all over the world come and talk about their issues and what they can do as a global movement and a local movement. And, and, and this is the power of women as an individual. You come up with an idea, you get a few friends together and you make it happen. And you don't need more than three or four women. Women in black also stand in Tasmania and they stand on a weekly basis. In Melbourne, we stand once a season. So the first Saturday of every season, we stand in the city. And the last time we stood, you know, we have very generic signs. I think uh, women pro-peace, women pro the Palestinian-Israeli peace movement. We've got some quotes from Israeli ministers from the president who Rivlin who makes a statement saying it's time to acknowledge the Israeli society is sick and we need to do something about it to Amira Haas which is one of the most amazing journalists in Israel along with Gidon Levy who actually talk about 
what's happening in the occupied territories in all honesty. They don't whitewash it or, or code to, to They just say what happened. And she talks about, you know, Palestinians aren't anti-Semitic. They're basically anti-the occupier. And their response to the occupation may be a result of a political analysis, a breakdown, in my personal opinion, of mental health. Because if you get hit in the head enough, you eventually break. And if you can't find easy way of getting out of uh, a situation, you can revert to violence. And I think that that's what we're seeing on a much greater level in Israel. Having said that, you know, in the Women in Black vigil in Melbourne last time we stood was the first time in a long time where we actually had a Jewish guy walk past, get offended by the, the signs. I tried to have a rational conversation and there was no rationality and it's been a long time since we were so verbally abused by this guy that he completely I, I would define what he did to us as a psychotic episode and I found it quite offensive but you know all I could say to him was have a you know Shabbat Shalom which is have a you know peaceful Saturday and try and move him on because he wasn't making any sense and I think that that's the experience I had on a regular basis in Israel, that you can't communicate, that people get offended, and they get offended by what I would call generic signs. Now, Women in Black in Israel still stands. The difference between the past and the present is the signs are a lot more radical. Sometimes they count the amount of people who are dead. Sometimes they talk about an eye for an eye is only going to end up in death for everybody, that it's essential to end the occupation that we need to talk to uh, a bus and that we need to work through peace the other thing i wanted to just mention is that the reason we started as women in black was because a lot of women joined the women's peace movements and the women the generic organizations in israel and found that even though we were working with human rights activists and left-wing activists and people had an understanding of equality within the nationalities, there was still misogyny. So women broke off and then women decided that they were going to do something different where they didn't have to deal with the misogyny on top of the nationalistic agenda. One of the many reasons why women's organisations set up and in Israel, you know, we started Women in Black and we used to have guys standing with us. But what we found was when we had men standing with us was that there was more chance of aggression and violence and we didn't want that. And part of that was when other men walked past and started abusing women, men felt that they needed to take a stand where women can stand in silence. We ended up saying no to the guys who came and stood with us. Having said that, today Women in Black in Haifa has a few men that come and stand. They stand in more sympathetic area, so at the bottom of the Baha'i Temple on a roundabout. It's a majority Arab area, so most people are sympathetic and appreciative. Every now and then there's a Jewish driver, Jewish-Israeli driver that drives past that's abusive. Not all Jewish-Israeli drivers are abusive, but there's a small percentage. Every week they experience some form of uh, abuse. On one occasion, a bus driver drove over the roundabout and almost hit one of the women. The aggression is quite severe. Now, we need to look at the context of Israeli society and... 
I have conversations with certain people and I really want to emphasise that the racism in the Middle East is systemic. It's not individual, it's not stranger coming from left wing, it's systemic. The misogyny is systemic. I remember one of the Holocaust survivors in Women in Black saying to me, this is what Nazi Germany was like before Hitler came into power. And she said that in the late 80s. My family escaped the Holocaust and my whole... All my elders, most of my elders, are buried in some mass grave because of the Holocaust. So I never had grandparents and, I, you know, I grew up as a child of refugees. So I hold the responsibility of a very Jewish saying, which is never again. But never again means never again should anyone be abused by anyone. <laughs> and I think that that's been manipulated by a right-wing Zionist entity that manipulates Jewish communities with propaganda around the world and manipulates its own community. So, you know, when President Rivlin, who is renowned for being right-wing and wants a one-state solution, but a one-state solution that's predominantly Jewish, but everyone has to be equal... When he says that Israel is a sick society and he's had death threats from other racist right-wing Jews, it's a sign of the fact that Israel as a society is very, very unhealthy, that the role of women who choose to step out of the nationalistic narrative is not an easy path and the conflict that comes from that is being emotionally abused, psychologically abused and physically abused on a regular basis. So, you know, the Women in Black group that stands in Melbourne, it stands in Tasmania, it stands around the world, in essence tries to raise awareness that there's another way of doing it. And it's one of the dozen or so organisations that I'm connected to in Israel. And I think that now more than ever, a political analysis needs to happen. But my attitude to Israel and in particularly the Netanyahu government, and I said it many years ago that Netanyahu propagates war. He's not interested in peace and he's never been interested in peace and he knows how to manipulate the situation so he looks like he's doing something but, you know, he pulls back. And I think that ultimately for peace to happen, there needs to be massive reconciliation. There needs to be honest and fair discussion. We all need equality and rather than this patriarchal concept of needing a solution... I actually think everybody first needs to be made equal under one law because at the moment, if you look at Israel, there are certain Palestinian groups that are under one law, Arab-Israeli Palestinians are under another law. Depending on where you live in Israel or Palestine as a Palestinian, whether you live in the West Bank or Gaza, to what status and freedom of movement you have, and I think we need to get rid of all of that. And I think everyone needs equality under one law. And then we'll sort out what the solution is. Having said that, as I get older, I have to say I've become a bit more anti-nationalistic. <laughs> My father was a communist and hated religion and saw religion as an evil. I don't see religion as an evil, but I see the patriarchal interpretation 
interpretation of religion as an evil and what manipulates people into oppression and hating the other. But, you know, I also see nationalism as a way of manipulating populations into not liking the other and being possessive of land and possessive of not sharing. And I think that when we look at the refugee crisis, we look at the government, the Liberal government, and its attitude to refugees, and particularly from Syria, and, and I'm not even going into the fact that there are a whole lot of Palestinians in Syria who were expelled in 1948 and never allowed to return to Israel. Still refugees in Syria living in absolute disaster and they can't return to their homes in Israel and I think that that's criminal on another level. It's about being humanitarian, it's about understanding and our attitude in society of the illegal immigrant and the illegal person trying to come in on the boat is a false analogy because I'm not sure what Malcolm Turnbull or Tony Abbott or any member of the Liberal Party or Labor Party would do if they were in a situation where either their family were about to be murdered or they could pay a people smuggler and try and cross the waters and risk surviving. And, and, I, and I notice no journalists really confront politicians with what would you do if your family was in that critical situation. It's time to put that on the agenda because in the end it's about respecting people and treating people the way you want to be respected and the women's movements that come from a feminist space talk about let's respect each other, let's treat each other with a sense of you know, morality and morality means not abusing one another. It's Women in Black is one of the many organisations that I was a part of that I think is fundamentally critical to the health and wellbeing of society as I do think any women's movement that teaches critical thought is. And that's part one of um, a longer interview with Alex Nissen, Jewish, Israeli, Australian human rights activist now living in Melbourne and we'll be hearing that on the program next week.